We are continuing on with our sermon series through uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, we picked it up the first two Sundays in September. And so we are coming uh, to the point where uh, each week Paul is teaching something to the church there. He's writing to Timothy, and one of the things I want to add right from the beginning here, because he wants Timothy, uh, he wants to give Timothy some instructions on the public worship of church. Because we know in chapter one, Paul has urged him to confront the false teachers, and he's, he's telling him how to really do the ministry of the word. And we must understand that though Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, where the letter to the Ephesians was written, was also a lot of what you would describe as house churches, pocket churches. It's not like church today where people probably have the freedom to travel to churches. The church in Ephesus was made up of really one main church, and then a lot of churches offer that. And so what Paul wants to do is to give Timothy some instruction towards a public worship of church, what we do in church. Uh, and as we go into chapter two, because it's really split into two parts, uh, who is to lead, who is to speak, who is to do what needs to be done. Now, I'm going to put three words up. Now, they all begin with the same letter, uh, simply because that makes it easier to remember. Uh, and all churches, uh, be beginning here with what Paul is writing to Timothy, have to have these three. They have to have orthodoxy, order, and organization. Uh, so I picked orthodoxy simply because I already had order and organization, so I needed a word beginning with O just to make it easy. Uh, so orthodoxy in church is simply what we believe and how we put it into practice. And now we need to hold on to these three words over the next few weeks as Timothy, as Paul gives Timothy some instruction about church. So we remember these, what we believe, how we put that into practice. The second thing is the order. What does God expect us to do and how we are to behave? And the third thing is the organization of the church, which is the way church has done, you know, incorporating how we worship, the prayer life of the church, the preaching and teaching. Now, when we look at that, your organization and your order for church must always come out of your orthodoxy. It must come out of your doctrine that you believe. That's the foundation. It's what Timothy was, uh, Paul was urging Timothy to do in the first chapter. Make sure that it's grounded in truth because your order of the church and the organization of church comes out of your orthodoxy, what you believe, your foundation. Uh, and so we must hold on to that. None of that has changed in the church that we have here today. We still need to do that. If we, if we simply just ignore the orthodoxy, what we have is really a church that has no order and the organization is made up of really what's going on in society today, what's going on in culture today. And we bring that into the church and try to mold church around that. And that's why the orthodoxy is important. It's essential for what we believe. And this is what Paul is writing uh, to Timothy. And he's writing in these first seven verses these words. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So in chapter one, we see the instructions towards the ministry of the word. In chapter two here, we see the instruction towards the ministry of prayer. He urges Timothy, first of all, uh, which does not refer to time, but actually to practice, uh, to pray, uh, to simply pray. And so we see already that, that Paul has urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus. He's urged Timothy to confront the false teachers. But now this begins part of the letter where he urges him to put the church in order, to say this is what church has to be about. So he's got the ministry of the word to start with, and now this is the ministry of prayer. Uh, and so we see that the prayer has to be the foundation as well as the word for how a church is ordered and how a church is organized. A church can be a lot of things to a lot of people. We move towards this in 2021. You know, the social aspect of what we do as a church is, is, is important, but it's not as important as prayer. You know, in a sense, what we do is we want to help people and we're big, big believers in wanting to help people, but not at the expense of seeing them saved. Because almost as somebody once described it to me, we don't want to make people comfortable on their journey to hell. We want to give them something that says, actually, giving you something to help you in this life is good, but giving you something that helps you get into the next life is amazing. And that's the idea that we have. So uh, here we're told the four types of prayers. We see the first one, petitions, which is asking. The second one is prayers itself, which is communicating. The third one, intercession, which is praying for others. And the fourth one is thanksgiving, which is giving thanks. So when we come to pray, uh, those are the four types of prayers that we have. We, we must not come and ever change the, the praying of the church, the prayer meeting of the church, uh, at the expense of something else should there only be two or three gathered in the prayer meeting that's okay because that's what scripture says that Christ is here but we know that's not the case we must make sure that we come and pray and so here it's not the difference of prayers but the practice of prayers and so the foundation for this bit when we come to pray is understanding this because often at times as believers our types of prayers are tied up in the petition coming to God to ask him for something. When we are in trouble, we're asking God and saying, God, and so we sometimes ignore uh, what we do as far as the other ones are concerned sometimes. And so John Stott said this, he said, the purpose of prayer is emphatically not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. We want to do God's will. That's what we want to do as a church. We don't want to do the leadership's will. We don't want to do my will. We don't want to do your will. We want to do God's will. How we discover what God's will is simply by praying, by spending time with him. The second thing Oswald Chambers, who knew a little bit about prayer, uh, says this, the purpose of prayer is to reveal the presence of God equally present all the time in every condition. 
Uh, which means there is nothing we can't pray about. There's nothing that we can't bring to God. There's no person that we cannot pray for. And so because that presence of God is equally present in all conditions for all people. And then the third quote that we see is the purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to know someone. But verse 2 throws us into a bit of a challenge because Paul not only tells us how to pray, but then he tells us who to pray for because he says you're to pray for kings and those in authority. One of the things we struggle with sometimes is, well, how much of what the government says and those in authority should we take heed of as a church? And hopefully I will give you some answers today that you'll either agree with or disagree with. But we do know that Paul writes this elsewhere as a foundation for what he's just said there in verse 2. In Romans 13 verse 1 he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now Paul writes that because early Christians were often accused of undermining the state because they simply claimed a higher Lord than Caesar, which is what they should do. It says the same as us, our authority is not the government, our authority is not the queen, our authority is not, uh, we, we serve a higher Lord, we worship a higher Lord, Jesus Christ. That's been the same from the beginning. But the church's argument was this, that they support the state not by praying to the emperor, but praying for the emperor. Now, we have to remember at the time, and if you think at the moment that it's bad because Boris Johnson is in charge, or the fellow from the DUP, Paul Gibbon, is in charge, or, or somebody else, or dare I say it, Michelle O'Neill is a deputy. <laughs> He says, we look at it and say, well, how on earth do we pray for these people? Well, let me tell you about the emperor at the time that Paul writes this. His name was Nero, uh, and he was the emperor at the time. A more wicked, evil man uh, you struggle to find in history. Responsible for killing his wife, his stepbrother, and his mother. In AD 64, Rome burned for six days. Nero blamed the Christians. He wanted to find something to blame the Christians for. At that point, the Christians weren't really persecuted. They were just a branch of Judaism. And so they actually weren't persecuted. But Nero, uh, not finding out who had actually been responsible, decided it's the Christians' fault. We'll blame them. And so Nero made the Christians subject for the blame and the responsibility for burning Rome. And to punish them, he would do certain things like he would cover them with the hides of wild animals so dogs would attack them and eat them to death. So you think it's bad with Boris Johnson, it's nothing like this. He would nail them to crosses. Or one of the most horrific things he did was when he was having a party at the palace at night, he would burn the Christians alive as like candles so it would light up the palace gardens and stuff. He was a more wicked, evil man. And Paul simply says, this, this is to pray for your kings, your leaders, those in government. Well, we would struggle with that, wouldn't we? A more wicked, evil person that we would find. You see, but we have to understand this, you see. We are not doing this because we believe the politics and government will not change the world. They won't change the world. They are there to govern, to pass laws that protect us and punish those who break the law. But Paul moves on after he said why we should pray for them because he then says, well, actually, we should live quiet and peaceable lives. 
that often goes against a little bit of what we should be like as Christians and actually we, we should be quiet we should live peaceable lives how does that fit in that actually we wouldn't make a nuisance of ourselves so some Christians are just a nuisance aren't they you're thinking of somebody now aren't you they're just a nuisance sometimes you know rather than just in a sense doing what it says here which is a peaceable and quiet life they're just a nuisance yeah. they don't stand for anything yeah. they just stand against everything yeah. everything it doesn't matter what it's for I'm against it I'm a Christian well it is I'm against it Christians go to the cinema I'm against it ladies wherever I'm against it oh I'm against it it doesn't matter it says well I'm against it it's just a nuisance but actually what's happening here is Paul is saying, actually the aim of this, as you pray, and then pray for those in government and authority, actually it's so you would live quiet and peaceable lives. Well, why is it important for us to live quiet and peaceful lives? Well, I think the truth of it is this, and, and we would understand this. So actually, the church doesn't deserve any special favours. We should not be surprised the way that unsaved and non-Christian people want to live. I mean, that's the way that they choose to live. Our job is to make a difference in the world to show them there is a different way to live by following Jesus Christ. And so as far as the government is concerned, we're not looking for any special favours. We're looking for a level playing field, unrestricted, uh, unrestricted by state intervention in a sense. And as we move on, I'll show you why. See, the basic benefit of good government is this. It's peace, meaning freedom from war and strife. We pray for kings and authorities in the context of peace that preserve religion and morality so they can flourish and evangelism can go forward without interruption. Christians should never get involved in, uh, we need to stop people having that freedom of speech if they're crude people, if they're rude people. Listen, if they take the freedom of speech away from those people who, in a sense, were use it as, there was an example recently of a comedian that they said, we're not allowing him to uh, do his show at a town hall because basically it was rude and it was disgusting and they brought it under the Freedom of Speech Act and everybody said, well, that's okay because we're standing for but we should stand for freedom of speech more because if they pull that freedom of speech away from him eventually they'll pull it away from us and you see at the moment I can stand in this church and I have full freedom of speech if I wanted to this afternoon I could walk down into Belfast I could stand at Corn Market or wherever they preach in town or stand anywhere in town and I could begin to preach Though people might not like it, and though people may disagree with it, in the country that we live in, I have the freedom of speech to do that. And so that's why we must understand and hold on to that freedom of speech, because that's the peace that we live in. Another example is this, if you've ever been in any of the Euro spas recently, the, the big garages and stuff, I know it is, it's a few weeks ago. They have a stall, a box there, uh, and it's the word for today, just there in the garage. And I just thought, isn't that a fantastic bit of evangelism of the church not being a pesky nuisance? Just simply people go in the garage and as they walk out the door, and I've seen it in a few of them, they can take a word for today and say that. People go, well, that's not, that's not telling them they're going to hell. That's not telling them the stuff we need to tell them. No, God, who will do all of that? We don't know they'll pick that up. They'll read that and they'll understand something in that and say, hold on a second, I need to find something else out here. This is the difference we need to make in society. And we live, we want to be able to live in peace here because 
Paul says that. You see, within a stable society, the church may be free to worship God, obey his laws, and spread the gospel. The duty of the church is to pray for the government, pray that its leaders may administer justice and pursue peace. So we really do this. We pray for the government that the government protects the church. We have to leave this alone at the moment that we somehow feel we are under persecution because of what's going on. We are not under persecution. There was nobody at the door of the church this morning that said to me, Matt, you can't come to church today and we don't want you preaching the gospel and tonight we don't want Darren sharing his testimony and we preaching and telling them the good news of Jesus. If they try to stop us doing that, that's persecution. That's persecution. Our difficulty sometimes is this, is we see other things that go on and say, well, that's persecution. That we have to be civilly disobedient in a sense. It says we don't have to be. It says we have the freedom of speech in this country. We're able to come in peace and preach the gospel to those people that would come in to the church at the four services that we have on today. See, our difficulties, we get confused because persecution is the result of righteous living, not civil disobedience. That happens when they can find nothing else to say about us because our life is lived with transparency, honesty, integrity, and purity. And you see, in the difficulty, we have that the wrong way around sometimes. We think we're being persecuted. We're not being persecuted. You go to some of these countries in the world, follow the look at the open doors map. And that's real persecution, where if we did this, the soldiers would come in and either arrest the leaders or they would throw the Christians in jail. They'd point the guns at the members of the church and say, do you really believe in God? That's persecution. We're not persecuted here this morning. We throw the doors open. We can sing as loud as we want. We can come and worship God. That's not persecution. And, and so here we come to, and this really, this quote really stood out for me over this last year. This is a challenge really to all Christians. Uh, don't tell me you'll go to prison for your faith when you won't even go to church for it. <laughs> that one stings a bit, doesn't it? Like, that's one of those like, oh, you know, dear me. So, uh, I'm not saying any more about that because it's just the reality of it for people, isn't it? Yeah, we're not living under persecution. You have people turn around and say, well, I, I, I'll go to prison for my faith. Well, that's good. Come to church for it first. He says, come and pray in the church first and do that. Oh, don't, yeah, don't do that. Like. He says, well, that's it. He says, that's how we prove it. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy when we live quiet, peaceable, reverent lives. But we move on here just quickly. Because time is short today. There's one way to pray. There was one God to pray to. And there was one man is the access to prayer. There was a universal range that Paul speaks of in these messages, in these verses. He says, all people we should pray for, all people as far as salvation goes, and all people for ransom. All is who we are to be praying for and preaching to. He's already said that we pray for kings and authorities. It's easy to pray for our friends, our families, our leaders. We struggle a bit when we have to pray for those that annoy us. Pray for those who don't believe the same thing that we do. But all covers all. All covers everyone. And so that's what we have to do. See, it's interesting that you cannot hate who you are praying for. And when I talk about prayer, I'm not talking about the way some Christians pray. I'll pray for them. Lord, the fire of your judgment will just come down upon them and burning coals upon their head. That's not the prayer we're looking for. 
Though that's a prayer sometimes people pray. It says we're praying for those who don't agree with us. We're praying to live peaceable lives. You see, you will know sometimes if you have forgiven somebody who has offended you simply because you can pray for them, simply because you can pray and ask God's blessing. See, here we come on to that word in verse 6 that Paul uses. He talks about the provision of a ransom. And you see, when he says the provision of a ransom, he says it's for all, not some. But we know that not all will be saved. It says some to be saved is elitism and all to be saved is universalism. Now, before we all jump back up here and say, oh, no, 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 my theological point of view, let's hold off and see why Paul is writing this. This goes back to chapter one. Remember the endless genealogies that were there in chapter one, that people were talking about, well, the right pedigree, the right place, the right family, and all of this, the inner circle, that the nationalistic Jews believed that they were the chosen ones, and nobody could come into their group, nobody could come into their club, and so it was elitist, it was only them. It was the same with the Gnostic believers. The Gnostic believers were simply those that believed that the initiation into Christianity was simply just by knowledge alone. So you had to sort of just be by your intelligence. You just be by how intellectual you are, how, how you could understand it. So half of us would be out of it already. But here, this is what he's talking about, the elitism, because they've both been driven by law and not drawn by grace. So that's the sum. But what do we do with the all then? Well, the all is universalism. Well, and you know what? If, you, if it's universalism where everybody gets saved, you know what? Let's finish church now. We might as well go for ice cream. We might as well go down the park because, listen, in the end, we all get saved. It doesn't matter. They're not putting us sitting in church listening to me. The church is going to go and buy you all ice cream. But we don't believe that. So we can't buy you ice cream. So it comes to this. It says, where is the balance in the middle of all this? He says, because Paul writes this. You see, I think the balance here is this. It's God's desire is all will be saved, but God's decree is not all will be saved. His decree is different from his desire. His decree is his will. Where is the balance in that between his desire and his decree? It lies in our decision, whether we like it or not. God will not fulfill his desire to save all men at the expense of making us all robots that simply worship him from simply being programmed to do so. He understands man's rejection of him. And you see, if we're ever going to prove something biblical, I was taught to do this. He says, you ever want to prove something biblical? Get an example from the Old Testament, and then an example from the New Testament, and then an example of where Jesus says it. So that's what I'm going to do. Ezekiel 33 says, he says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? There is a desire of the Lord, the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We see his desire there again in the New Testament. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. 
What's the message here? Preach to everyone, everywhere. It's actually easier to proclaim the gospel to everyone. You see, Bob Goff said this, and it's so true. We shouldn't say everyone's invited if we're going to act like they're not welcome when they come. We shouldn't throw the doors open to the church and say, come and take a seat with the rest of us. It's when they take a seat, we make them feel like they're not wanted here. Who does Jesus turn around and tell us to preach to? He tells us everyone, everywhere, all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul is just writing this, an illustration to Timothy, so he can share this with those teachers that are saying, actually, do you know what we need to do? We pray for everybody. The ransom was paid for everybody. Not everybody will take it up. Not everybody will take up what is offered to them. We know that people will sit in church tonight. They will hear the gospel, some of them, for the 20th or 30th time. And they will not take up the offer that God has made to them. He says, but we have to come to this and say, we must present it without reservation. There is no limit to who can be preached to. Because if we're praying for kings and leaders in authority, then we must understand this, that we must preach to them as well. Because you cannot preach to those who haven't prayed for. Who is the ransom paid for? Everyone, everywhere. Who are we to pray for? Everyone, everywhere. Who is the gospel preached to? Everyone, everywhere. We must not let anyone limit the gospel. It does not come to us to end with us. It comes to us so we can share it and tell the world about it. We are not a club that we sign up in a sense to a membership that says, I'm in the club. I'm in. I'm part of that group. It says we are part of a group that says it has come to us and changed our life. We want to see it change everybody else's life because it's an answer for the world that we have today. You know what the difficulties and I'm guilty of this with Jonah's at times. With Jonah's says to Jonah, Jonah, somebody best described Jonah as an as a New Testament story in the Old Testament. Go to go to Nineveh and tell the people to repent. What does he do? He goes the other way. I don't want to tell them. I'm not telling them the message that God loves them and they've got to repent. So he goes the other way. And then he gets swallowed up by a fish, a whale, sorry. Fish is the liberal word, but it's definitely a whale. He's swallowed up by a whale. Simply prays the greatest prayer that man has ever prayed when they've been inside a whale for three days. Get me out! He prays out and God gets him out and he does what he's been told to do in the beginning. But when he does it, what does he do? They repent and he gets upset. God, how can you save them? How, how, could, you, how could your message be for them? He says, and, and God explains to him, he says, that's not for you. Your job is to go and do what I've asked you to do, to go and tell them to repent, to go and tell them that I love them. It's our responsibility here. It's why tonight is on. Because we're not doing tonight because we want to fill another Sunday night. We're doing tonight because we want people to be saved. We want people to hear the message that's for them. For everyone. Everywhere. Why? Because the ransom has been paid for everyone. Everywhere. Because they're people that, that we are praying for. And we're praying for them because they're part of everyone. From everywhere. And this is what the first chapters of 
1 Timothy 2 verse 1 to 7 says, and my time is up. And next week is 8 to 15, as we know, is how Timothy addresses the issue. I was going to say how Timothy addresses the problem of women, but I'm not going to say that. How he addresses the issue of women in church. So if you think it was uncomfortable today, he says, wait till next Sunday. Wait till next Sunday. I'm keeping the fire exit doors open next Sunday. And I promise certain females who have threatened me with uh, physical violence that if I was to crack any jokes next Sunday, so I'll not be cracking any jokes next Sunday. But this is what Paul says to Timothy. He is writing this. And as we read the Bible and study the Bible, changes the way we think because often our times we're wrapped up in our theological convictions and our doctrinal things that says well we've got to go down this road no we don't says it's for everyone everywhere whoever comes in tonight we pray that they all get saved he says it's God's business to do the rest of it but our business is to preach the gospel and to see people saved so their lives are changed for his glory let's pray father we thank you so we come to your word lord Father, your word throws out challenges to us at times because as we read it, we understand, Father, that, Father, that you have a plan, an order, an organisation that comes from the belief of your word. And, Father, as we come today, Lord, we're believing, Lord, that, that we have a responsibility as a church, a calling as a church to preach the gospel to see people saved. Father, to present to them the difference that your son can make in their lives. And Father, what a tremendous responsibility. Help us not to be held back by theological convictions or doctrinal issues that would hold us in a place that limits the power of your gospel. Though God, as we throw open the doors, we believe the message of your love and your salvation is for all. And Father, we thank you for that today. We lift your son high above everything. This evening as we come and Darren brings his testimony, Father God. To God, those unsaved in, those visitors in, your spirit will do a work in their lives that leads them to salvation. For this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.